Romans chapter 14 now. And uh, I think it's a good idea that we just have a bit of a recap on uh, uh, the chapters that we've looked at. So let's just make sure that we've got this argument in Romans in our mind that uh, in Romans chapter one, we thought, didn't we, about the introduction that gets us into verse 17, that the, in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And we then come to realise that the only way we can ever live is by faith, because actually uh, the world we live in is seeped in the problem of sin. Uh, and what's more, chapter two, you're inexcusable, I'm inexcusable. We're part of that problem. Uh, we're seeped in the, the, the problem of sin. And uh, chapter three most certainly shows that. But we're so grateful in chapter three that God has provided a solution in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So all have sinned and come short of the glory of God but we can be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, actually, faith is something that God has always wanted. You can go back to the Old Testament, chapter four. You see men like David, men like Abraham. You recognize God has always wanted faith. He wants people who will put their faith and trust in him. So when we come into chapter five, we are really, it's, for me, it's a, such a helpful chapter to, to think, well, you know, can God even save me? Can his grace stretch to, to my problems? And uh, chapter five gives us this wonderful contrast, which shows, look, if you can get your head around the impact of Adam's sin and how enormous that is, which none of us have any problem with at all, because we all see just how enormous the issue is in our lives, uh, let alone in the world, he says, my grace is greater than that. It's much more is the key phrase. So it's such a helpful chapter. So we realize, yes, God's grace is sufficient for us. So therefore, live the life. And so chapter six is saying, put your baptism into practice. Make that the reality of your life. Try to put to death the things of the flesh and, and live uh, after the ways of God. So live your new life, serve your new master. And then as you come into chapter seven, love your new husband. Does that mean it's some um, easy ride? No, it's not. No, the, the discipleship is not easy. The things that you don't want to do, you end up doing. The things that you do want to do, you end up not doing. Chapter seven, it's a challenge, but keep that battle alive. Chapter eight, there is so much on your side if you're keeping that battle alive because the Lord God is working to get you to the kingdom. All things work together for good for those who love him. Love is appearing. And actually the very challenges of our lives, um, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, your tribulation or distress or persecution, all those things, in all those things, we're more than conquerors. Those challenges can help us. God is using them to support us getting to the kingdom. So keep having faith. Now, bit of a tangent in a sense, chapters 9, 10 and 11, enormous in the purpose of God. But look at Israel. And again, you will see that actually chapter nine, God has always been choosing people out. Now, it's not simply about, you know, who your father is, you know, what you've been born in, into as being children of Abraham. That doesn't save you in itself. OK, it's a wonderful privilege, which you get to know about the law. You get to know about the word of God. But actually what God would always want and always has wanted and always will want is faith. So that comes through chapter nine and ten. And then lovely in chapter 11, how it shows that actually when Israel does turn in faith, what a blessing that will be for the Gentiles. 
So you get to the end of chapter 11 and you're left in, you know, wow, what an amazing purpose God has that he's all the time sort of using uh, one to try to to grip the other, that we might see, you know, the witness of one and think, right, I want to be a part of that. The Jews looking at the, uh, well, the Gentiles first of all, looking at the Jews, then the Jews looking at the Gentiles, then the Gentiles looking once again at the Jews and recognising, I can see that God is with you. I want to be with you. Um, and so that should elicit from us a, a reaction that we might want to serve God. You know, it's the logical thing to do when you see the depth of the mercy of God. And so chapter 12 is saying, isn't it? Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Keep thinking through the scriptures. Let that be what's running through your minds. And as you're taking on board the scriptures, the spirit of God, that is the mind of God then actually he can use that to develop us and to change us and to prepare us for the kingdom. Uh, and what we saw in chapter 12 was a key phrase that began that what God is interested in is how we're relating to one another. Now, that relationship is one that we've got to build not only in the ecclesia, but with others in the outside world as well. So chapter 13 describes the secular relationships that we have. And uh, again, we recognise that we need to submit to authorities. And we went through some lessons uh, about that last week. And so now we come into chapter 14. And uh, again, we recognise that uh, we're now going to be looking at um, de our dealings with one another, but now in matters to do with the conscience. Okay, So that's what's uh, going to come through in chapter 14. You know, to have good relationships with one another, we need to bear in mind that for all of us as mortal beings, there are matters of conscience that some see as extremely important and others don't. And that's what's going to come through now in chapter 14. Now, before we get cracking on that, I want to make sure that you are aware how to get onto the Padlet. And so um, my sister uh, told me that uh, her nephew, sorry, her my nephew, her son, had uh, just simply used a QR code to be able to enable people to access a Padlet. So um, that's what I'm sharing with you now, this QR code, uh, which if you scan on your phone, you'd be able to go through to uh, the Padlet where we've got all sorts of sort of um, good little bits about Romans that uh, you might enjoy accessing in your spare time. Um, of course, you can't be looking through it now because now you've got to be uh, focused on this. But I'll leave that QR code up there just for a, a few minutes. So a key word which runs through chapter 14. So if you were colouring now, uh, this is worth just getting a colour for. A, a key word that runs through is the word judge. And really the emphasis is not on listing matters of conscience within chapter 14. It's on how you deal with individuals who do hold on to things because their conscience tells them that they should. So verse one, him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations or for not for decisions of doubt. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not and let not him that eateth not judge him that eateth for God has received him who art thou that judgest another man's servant to his own master he standeth or falleth yea he should be holden up 
for God is able to make him stand. Now, the particular issues within the Roman Ecclesia here definitely have a Jewish background regarding diet, food and drink or observance of uh, holy days, particular holy days. And you can imagine the Jews who were used to keeping the feasts would have found it hard to walk away from them uh, and perhaps might have seen verses uh, about the Feast of Tabernacles that are going to be kept in the kingdom. And Zechariah 14, for example, they say, well, you know, the Feast of Tabernacles are still going to happen in the kingdom. Well, why would we leave that alone now? Or, or see the importance of the Sabbath in the Old Covenant and say, well, well, surely we should keep these holy days. Verse 5. One man esteemeth, and that's the same word as judge. So in the Greek, that's the same word judge that you've seen already in verse three and verse four. One man judges one day another, another judges every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. He that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it. He that giveth thanks, uh, sorry, he that eateth, eateth to the Lord. But he giveth thanks, and he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. So you can see then that uh, actually, like there are clearly people who are holding on to some things, some things to do with meat, to with drink, to do with particular days. Now I'd like to come back to this word judge. So make sure you've got the eight times it comes in this chapter. Uh, verse three, verse four. Twice in verse five, esteemeth. So we've got four so far. Verse 10, why dost thou judge thy brother? Verse 13, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, seven. So the last one is in verse 22, which in the AV says, happy is he that condemneth not or condemneth not himself so the word condemneth there is the word judge judges not himself okay so eight times in this chapter now interestingly the word judge the same greek word comes up eight times in another chapter in romans as well it's in chapter two so perhaps let's just hold uh romans 14 and chapter two got two hands hopefully we're able to do this um and uh, yeah, you might remember when we were looking at chapter two, I think I probably pointed out it was a key word there. And uh, it, once again, you can go through uh, and colour it there. I'm not going to point it out now, but, you know, just go back in your own time and find the eight times the word judge comes in chapter two. Now, I think that this is significant and it's a good thing for us to notice because in chapter two, the apostle has been incredibly firm with the Jews who weren't practicing what they preached that they couldn't see that they were part of the problem of sin and actually gentiles who um yeah who, who hadn't grown up with the law were shaming them and the apostle warned them about standing aloof and judging the gentiles having a sort of holier than thou attitude so just to see the opening verse Wherefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for in thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. And then we pointed out that uh, the Jew in particular then gets braided in verse 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew and restest in the law, makest thy boast of God. So they were judging others, but not living up to the standards themselves. So it was the Jews in particular 
in chapter two that got the berating, as it were, that they were the ones who were being told, look, you need to sort it out here. Now, what's interesting here is that now in chapter 14, what we're actually seeing is it's the Gentiles that really are being told, and don't you judge the Jews who might be holding on to certain aspects of the law for reasons of conscience. And so can you see that in a sense, the two balance one another out. Like what a helpful thing that is to see that actually in ecclesial life, yes, there are times when somebody might need to be uh, um, reprimanded, as it were. Uh, another time, some, somebody else, another group. You know, we've got to try to get the balance right in ecclesial life in uh, uh, trying to get these matters of conscience sorted. Now, we might think, well, these things, they were to do with the law, a holy day, meat, drinks, you know, surely the law has just come to an end. We know that uh, Christ was the end of the law for righteousness. And uh, I'll give you a cross reference for that from Romans chapter 10 and verse four that I, I've put on the screen there for you. So we're not expected to uphold the law as a matter of judicial obligation. However, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ has been done that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's from Romans 8 and verse 4. So how do we reconcile the law finishing, but the law being fulfilled in us? And I think that chapters 13 and 14 of Romans are really helpful here, because last week we saw that in our relationships with one another, the apostle writes in chapter 13 and verse 8, Owe no man anything, but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. So essentially, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in that one statement. The law enabled society to honour God directly and to honour God through loving one another. So that, that's clear, isn't it? That's, you know, in the sense, that's the two things that we do. We, we try to honour God directly in our prayers, in our praises, in trying to listen to him, trying to put these things together, practice in our lives. But the relationships that we then build with each other, we're honouring God through that as well. And the law enabled that. So another useful cross-reference is in Matthew 7 and verse uh, uh, 14, I put there, but I've got a feeling it's Matthew 7 and verse 12. So I'm going to quickly check that one for us uh, it is Matthew 7 and verse 12 I'm sorry so let's just see if we can uh, uh, edit that on the screen so therefore all things whatsoever you would then men should do to you even so do to them for this is the law and the prophets so you can see love one another he that loveth another has fulfilled the law we've got to remember haven't we that the law wasn't the problem we are so so i've given you that cross reference from romans 8 this time what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh so the law was not the issue the only reason that the law you know there was any issue with the law is because nobody could keep it you know we were weak through the flesh so the law wasn't the problem but the jews didn't understand the law properly they saw it as a legalistic document the law properly understood embodied the righteousness of God as a God of love and the purpose and motivation of the law 
was the manifestation of God's character, the goodness and severity of God was seen there. Severe with sin, good with anyone willing to recognise the problem and to look to him for the solution. And Jesus fulfilled the law. We know that again from Matthew chapter five. Jesus fulfilled. He said, I've not come to destroy them. I've come to fulfill it. And he did. He fulfilled the law in the sense that he was the solution. Every aspect of the law was pointing to him. And of course, he embodied the two key principles of the law and of the atonement, really. The problem of sin is fatal. And of course, in showing the problem of sin as fatal, in doing that, it highlighted God's perfect standard of righteousness. Remember, we've covered this a few times now in our study, that actually seeing the problem is the, the reason that God wants us to see that the wages of sin is death. Animal sacrifices, the reason that God wanted us to see that without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sins isn't because God enjoys that. Of course he doesn't. It's because he wants us to see the problem of sin. And in seeing the problem, we then come to see the solution. We come to see the God standard. We use the example of a child recognizing that, yeah, what they've done is wrong. The parent tries to teach them what you've done is wrong. But the parent in doing that is trying to show to them, and this is the right way. And of course, that's what we're faced up with. When we see the problem of sin, we're actually acknowledging that there is a right way, which is God's right way. And so we see that the acknowledging of sin declares the righteousness of God. And simultaneously, so you've got that aspect. Yes, the law showed the problem of sin is fatal and therefore it showed there was a right way. But at the same time, it showed that the law Sorry, it showed through the law showed or oh, the law taught that God would provide salvation, that God was there to provide. And so we can see how the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He declared the righteousness of God. The wages of sin is death. But he also in being set forth for those who put their faith in him, God would provide salvation. Now. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the end of the law. He fulfilled the law. But it doesn't mean that every aspect of the law suddenly becomes null and void. There's certainly an expectation, as shown in chapter 13 of Romans and verse 9, that we don't commit adultery, we don't murder, we don't steal, we don't covet, we don't bear false witness. You know, they're the very things that, that coming from the Ten Commandments, aren't they? So yeah, we're not suggesting that in the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilling the law and the law coming to an end in him, that suddenly every aspect of the law is just irrelevant. That's not true. We're upholding the point of the law, aren't we, through loving one another. God's purpose in that sense hasn't changed. The law was put there to demonstrate the problem of sin and to point forward as a schoolmaster to the solution. But of course, it wasn't that God was some different God. We're upholding the point of the law through our love of one another. Let's just remind ourselves, he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. That was the principle that Israel should have taken hold of. Now, we may wonder why in that list in verse nine, do we not see 
honor your father and mother. That was one of the Ten Commandments, wasn't it? I wonder why that's not there in relation to one another. But I think it's because chapter 13 is dealing with our relationships with others in the world in particular. So that wouldn't be a commandment that would come in there. Well, well what about keeping the Sabbath day? You might say, well, that's particularly to do with our relationship with God. And so therefore it wouldn't have come in just like, you know, the first commandments in the law. Uh, you shall know other gods before me. Okay, That's not there as well. So fair enough. You might argue that. But we do notice that when the Apostle Paul, when writing about exactly the same things that we're looking at in Romans 14, makes a specific point about the Sabbath day, which I'll share with you now on the screen from Colossians. So this is the Apostle Paul writing about exactly the same thing. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink. Well, that's the very thing that we're looking at here in Romans 14, isn't it? Or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So I'm going to stop showing my screen there for a moment. But I hope you can see very clearly then, just make sure you've got that cross-reference, Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. It's spelled out that we're not under an obligation to keep the Sabbath day. However, we're not going to judge those who try to keep that day special in some way. Principles of the Sabbath can be missed, though, if we somehow get hung up on keeping one special day. We're not obliged to keep the Sabbath day at all. But the principle of the Sabbath, we must uphold every day of our lives. Why do I say that? Well, our entrance into the kingdom is given in terms of the Sabbath. In Hebrews 3 and 4, the writer to the Hebrews explains how that when Israel as a nation of people left Egypt under Moses and went to the land of Israel, they didn't all enter into the rest because many didn't believe. So, so the Sabbath there is used as a type of the kingdom of God. You know, and we think of the Lord God resting on the Sabbath. We recognize that everything that, that, that God's created is all about getting us to the kingdom, getting us to that Sabbath rest. Now, the Sabbath is about ceasing from our works and rather than thinking about our own works, trying to think about God's works. In fact, it's more than thinking about, it's doing that. It's about trying to say, it's not about me, it's about God, putting God first in my life. Everything I do is for God. And in Isaiah 58, we're not gonna go there because of time, but Isaiah 58 is a great chapter with the principle of the Sabbath outlined in it. And it shows that we've got to stop serving self and rather serve God. So we, so we labor, we work, you know, we're trying to work to enter into that rest. Not because we believe for a moment that our works is what gets us into that rest, but because we're so grateful for the fact that God in his grace has said that we can go into that rest, that we want to put our energies into that as it were. So should we keep the Sabbath? The answer is surely yes, every day. Not 
one day a week, every day. As a principle, it speaks of the time of the kingdom when we've been liberated from sin and at rest. It speaks of the blessing we'll be able to take to the nations when under the Lord Jesus Christ's righteous rule, peace and ultimately rest will be spread throughout the earth. So, of course, then we want to be doing our best to live like that now, to uphold the principle of the Sabbath in each day of our lives. Now, that's a bit of a tangent, I realise, but hopefully it's useful in thinking about these matters of conscience. Verse six, he that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he does not regard it. It's all about the Lord. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. He that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not and giveth God thanks. So to recap, we're not under the law of Moses that came to an end in Christ. However, there are aspects of the law which in any society would be good to uphold because they make for better living. Furthermore, if someone is upholding something, something because they strongly believe it to be important for God, don't judge them. But... This has got to be the most important point here. Whatever it is that someone might feel they must uphold must be for the Lord. That is the crux in here in this chapter. Everything we do must be for the Lord. Conscience is irrelevant if it's not about the Lord. The Lord is what affects our conscience. And in the end, our whole life needs to be governed by the Lord. And so the key phrase running from verses six to nine is unto the Lord. So we've done chapter verse six a few times. Verse eight, whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and living. And then you see it in verse 11, as I live, as it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee to me shall bow. So do you see that the word Lord is this key phrase? Ten times in this chapter, the emphasis is on the Lord. There's no room for anything in our lives that isn't to the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ said, didn't he? No man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. And there's such truth in that statement. Of course, the Lord Jesus said it. But there is such truth in that statement regarding our discipleship. You see, unless everything is given to the Lord, all our heart, all our mind, all our strength, if we're actually trying to half-heartedly serve God, but actually, we want to fill our minds with trash. We want to go to places that we wouldn't take the Lord or we want to self self. Then really worryingly, we can start to resent serving the Lord. You start to despise the other. So we've got to challenge ourselves. The things that we do in our households, at work, the people that we hang out with. Can we honestly say that we're doing it for the Lord? And if there's any other motive, we better just cut it out. Get rid of it. So think carefully. 
Is this about me or the Lord? If it's about the Lord, you'll find clear scriptural teachings and principles that will support what it is that you're doing out of conscience. But if it's just about you, there's a good chance you will not. It's got to be as unto the Lord. Now, we should also note that matters of conscience are given in this chapter and the same things come up, by the way, a good cross reference again is in 1 Corinthians 8. But they're matters which arise, I noticed, directly from the word of God. They're matters that that's why I said, didn't I? They seem to be of a Jewish background because they're matters that arise out of the law. And that struck me as a real lesson to think carefully about in my own mind, that we should be very careful that we don't make a fuss of something and claim that it's a matter of conscience for us, unless it is a clear principle from the word of God. Now, of course, I get that there must, there's going to be some ambiguity, which is why it's a matter of conscience in the first place. It, it's a, it's a, not a first principle in that sense. But these things have come out of the word of God, the things that have come out of the law, and that's why they were matters of conscience. So I think that we've got to be very, very careful su suggesting to anybody that this is something that we do in our good conscience if it's not something that there's some basis for in Scripture. But where a brother or sister feels something is scripturally important, even though they would recognise it's not a first principle, a, you know, a matter of key doctrine, we must respect that. And in this ecclesia, this was going a bit wrong. Verse 10. Why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So he's saying, look, you got to be very careful that you're not judging another, that are trying to do something out of a good conscience, a scriptural conscience. Be careful that you're not judging because you will have to give account of yourself to God. Now, I have to say that I found it a bit chilling when I looked up this word set at naught. Well, I'll tell you something basic, first of all. That word set at naught is the same word in verse three, despise. It's the same Greek word. So when thou just despise thy brother, set him at naught. But this is what I found chilling. I looked that word up and saw that the Lord Jesus Christ was set at naught by Herod and his men of war. Now it's in Luke 23 and verse 11. Luke 23, verse 11. And suddenly the impact of how we're treating people hits home. We recall that our relationships with one another are supposed to be as unto the Lord. And in this sense, they were treating, setting at naught in a way that was horrifically done to the Lord Jesus Christ when he was set at naught by Herod and his men of war, when he stood before 
that judgment seat. And the warning then is, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was set at naught. And he's asked us to treat one another as he treated us, to love one another as I have loved you, he said, didn't he? And so we must be very, very careful about how it is that we treat one another when these issues of conscience do come up. What fools we'd have to be to set at naught brothers and sisters who were holding on to something in faith, never fall out with someone on a clear conscience issue. Now, it's almost ramped up a bit now in verse 13 to say, look, never drag a brother or sister down by setting them up to fall over something that they clearly think is important. Verse 13, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. And the word fall in verse 13 is translated as offence in Matthew chapter 18 and I believe verse 7. Yeah, Matthew 18 and verse 7. And it's there the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching and he says, don't be the one to bring offence, to make thy brother fall. He says, woe to him by whom the offence cometh. So we must tread carefully when dealing with these kind of issues. Carrying on, the apostle writes in verse 14, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest not thou charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not that your good be evil spoken of. Uh, it's pretty clear there, isn't it? That there's no such thing as unclean food. Verse 14. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ has told Paul directly as if him writing under inspiration wasn't enough. But be absolutely clear that there isn't such a thing as unclean food. However, if a brother or sister who holds the same basic doctrines as you believes that something is scripturally the right thing to be doing, don't stop them. And this then becomes the key exhortation for us all. In verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy. And I'm going to change this because there's uh, no definitive article here. And joy in a holy spirit, in a spirit of holiness. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace and joy in a spirit of holiness. For he that is in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things where with one another, we were with, sorry, we may edify one another. Now the words peace and joy 
come up together in one other place and you'll know immediately what it is i'm sure peace and joy the fruit of the spirit galatians 5 and verse 22 and it's significant i think because in the end god is looking to develop these characteristics in us they are the fruit of his spirit remember romans 8 his spirit is his mind the kingdom is about filling the earth with God's character, with the fruit of his spirit, a spirit of holiness, which is righteousness, peace and joy. Why is that so important to remember? Well, if we start getting riled over a matter of conscience and feel ourselves getting worked up and irritated, we're better to step back and wait until we're sure we're dealing with it in a manner which is befitting of the kingdom of God, one which displays the fruit of God's spirit. Can you see how important that is then? That actually, when it comes to matters of conscience, be so careful that we don't find ourselves getting, oh, no, why do they think that? Why, why are they thinking that? Be willing to just do it. If you think that it's something that needs to be talked about, be careful that you're dealing with it in the way that God would deal with us, in the fruit of his spirit. Remember, the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace and joy. That's the spirit we're trying to cultivate. It doesn't mean that we don't have to deal with things. Of course we do at times. But be careful that we're not losing the point of what God is doing with us, developing the fruit of the spirit in us. Now, the other point that I want to make here is the beginning of chapter 15 of Romans tells us in verse one, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, when we look up the words strong and weak together, they occur together three times outside of this passage. Once in Matthew 19 and verse 26, once in Mark 10 and verse 27, and once in Luke 18 in verse 27. And each of those the synoptic gospels are talking about exactly the same thing. It's when the Lord Jesus Christ says this in each gospel. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. So the word impossible, you've guessed, is the word weak. So the things which are weak with men are strong with God. Now, once again, then we're reminded that our entrance to the kingdom of God is based on the strength of his love. None of us deserve a place. We all fall on a long way short of his glory. However, in his grace and his abundant love, he's dealt with our sins and is helping us to get to the kingdom. He's the strong one doing that to us, the weak ones. Therefore, that has to make a difference with how we deal with one another as brothers and sisters. Verse 19, let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. We are following after that way. We're trying to build up others, recognising that the Lord God as the strong one has built us up while we were sinners. Well, no, I've got to tell me to myself. We'll just see this word again. Uh, Romans 5, 
when we were without strength, the revised version, when we were weak in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. God has done it for us. We've got to be willing to support others to get to the kingdom. Now, in verse 19 of chapter 14, the things which follow after peace. The, the word for peace, uh, irene or something in the Greek, probably comes from the verb ero, which means to join. So a peacemaker is someone who seeks to join others together and resolves differences. And again, I just think it's amazing, isn't it, that we think to ourselves of the work of the Lord God when we were without Christ, died in, uh, without, when we were weak or without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, God has provided. Through him, we've received the atonement, the bringing together. The Lord God is the ultimate peacemaker in that sense, isn't he? And the son, the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing together. That's what we're trying to do. We're about trying to bring people to God. Blessed are the peacemakers the Lord Jesus said, for they should be called the children of God, Matthew 5 and verse 9. And again, I remember Romans 8 and verse 16. God's spirit needs to bear witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. The spirit that we are trying to emulate, the spirit of the strong ones, the spirit of righteousness, peace and joy. God's the Holy Spirit, the fruit of his spirit. Now, this is God's character that we're talking about. Is shown in those characteristics. It's, it's one of peace. That's what we're trying to emulate. That his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Peacemakers are called the children of God. Now, of course, we know that within ecclesial families, some members will have a conscience over some things that others don't. Uh, whilst it might be important to them, because it doctrinally doesn't matter, it's important that we don't get cross about it. And we've got to be sure that we don't cause somebody to stumble because we're too hung up on the fact that it doesn't matter. Verse 20, for meat, destroy not the work of God. No, don't, for the sake of some meat, do not destroy the work of God. All things are indeed pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offence. If that brother is so concerned about this, it, it, it's a problem. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. It's such a strong point, isn't it? Now, I feel super nervous trying to give example of conscience issues. And hopefully you see the principles in this and whatever example I give, you know, won't be a good one, I'm sure. And certainly uh, in your own ecclesias, there'll be things that you perhaps can think of and being able to relate this to. And most certainly things will come up. Uh, and what I said earlier, I think, is something that is really important to underline is that we must never come up with a conscience, 
conscience issue that doesn't have a scriptural basis. These things are scriptural. So, so here is one then that might come up though. You might think dodgy, but like, give it a go. Imagine a brother or sister feels very uncomfortable having um, a certain like, musical instrument that's associated with pop music at the memorial service. And they might feel that because they feel that actually the pop culture statistics show that it is turning out songs that glorify sex, drug use and violence. You know, just, just look up some statistics on that. You just see that it's massively increased. You know, always you know, had a pretty strong uh, uh, basis pop music on those things, but actually it's just gone up and up and up. And those things are clearly against scriptural teaching. So somebody might say, look, I just feel uncomfortable. I don't think it's right that we bring those instruments into that service because of their association. Now, another person might say, what are you talking about? The instruments got nothing to do with it. And when we think of it in the cold light of day, they're right, aren't they? It's an animate object. It's an instrument. But the fact remains, rightly or wrongly, the fact doesn't remain because I'm making it up, that that member is concerned. It's clearly an issue of conscience for them. So then in that situation, we have to think to ourselves, would it be kind to, to have that person around? Would it be right to look for every opportunity to, to play music with those instruments on them, trying to sort of feel some desire that, oh, no, right, I'm going to make sure I educate you. If in your mind you've got it crystal clear on that matter be a support to that member who hasn't no doubt all of us will have things where we'll need the support of our brothers and sisters in our own lives so if you're so sure that they're in the wrong on something that you can see as a conscience issue remember you're the strong one at that point support that member and be grateful for the fact that that member another time may support you when you're the weak one. So he writes in verse 22, hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Um, happy is he that condemneth not himself in the thing which he alloweth or approveth. So let me give you that in a paraphrase, verse 22. You might believe there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, okay? Have you faith? Have it yourself before God. So if you don't, if you believe there's nothing wrong with what you're doing, fine. Keep that between yourself and God. Count yourself blessed. Happy are you when you don't feel guilty for doing something that you've decided is right. Yeah? Obviously, you've done that looking at scriptures and you think that's the right thing. But verse 23. He that doubteth. So he hasn't got the faith is damned if he eat because he eateth not of faith for whatsoever is not of faith is sin so the person whose faith is compromised they end up in a situation where they don't think uh, sorry, sorry that they, they don't think is right they end up in a mess because if they're not acting in accordance with their faith they're sinning now, no surprise that once again, now even on matters of conscience, we're seeing the importance of faith. That is what God wants. He wants a consistency from us. Do the things that you do in faith. Do things as unto the Lord. 
And remember that we've been exhorted, haven't we, already in chapter four to walk in the steps in the faith of our father Abraham. Walk also in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham. And I'm going to finish by sharing my screen once again and showing with you now some lovely links from this chapter and a bit into chapter 15 as well back to Romans chapter four. And it's no surprise, is it, to see that actually, look, what you've got to be doing is trying to emulate the example of Abraham. You've got to try and show his faith, his consistency in your life. So in terms of uh, the order from where we are now, let's just see if we can pick these out. Romans chapter 14 and verse one. Him that is weak in the faith, and no surprise, Abraham is described as being not weak in faith. In chapter 4 and verse 19, in verse 4 of Romans 14, God is able to make him stand. And uh, Abraham believed that what God had promised, he was able to perform. In verse 5, let every man be fully persuaded. Let everyone be fully persuaded in verse 5. And again, we notice in verse 14 that the apostle says, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus. I, I, you know, we've got to be fully persuaded in these things. And we notice that Abraham was fully persuaded. That was his faith. We then notice in uh, chapter 14 and verse 23, he that doubteth is doubted, but Abraham, he staggered not at the promise of God. And then you can see the uh, idea of the strong, that Abraham was strong in faith in chapter 15 and verse 1. And then finally in chapter 15 and verse 13, it talks about believing that you may abound in hope. And we notice that in Romans 4 and verse 18, that Abraham against hope believed in hope. So we remember then the importance in whatever we're doing of faith. The just shall live by faith. That's the premise of Romans, isn't it? Put our trust in God. Seek first his righteousness, his kingdom. Do everything unto the Lord. Mm -hmm.